0: if a guy can't preach after that, he can't preach. All right, this morning I want to invite you. uh, Thank you, Hannah. I want to invite you to take your Bibles together with me and turn to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. Uh, We have a little bit of a larger text that I want to look at this morning because um, as we go through Mark's gospel, I want you to get the big picture. Uh, I want you to see... Uh, the whole of this narrative in verses 1 through 25 in one kind of a snapshot uh, so that you get uh, an idea of the focus of the rest of Mark's gospel. We're really in the swing portion of the gospel of Mark and it's interesting to consider this for a moment but Mark is 16 chapters. In my Bible there are 14 pages that make up Mark 1 through 10. There are nine pages that make up Mark 11 through 16. Okay, now round numbers, that's 60% in Mark 1 through 10 and about 40% in Mark 11 to 16, just as far as page count goes. Mark 1 through 11 covers everything from the ministry of John the Baptist up to Palm Sunday. That's about three plus years. And Mark really skips over the whole birth narrative and uh, the visit of the angel and all that stuff. He really just picks up with uh, the ministry of John the Baptist. Mark 11 through 16 covers the last week of Jesus's earthly life and ministry from Palm Sunday to Resurrection Sunday. Uh, And uh, there are similar percentages in the other Gospels. Now, you maybe have never thought of it this way, but that means that as far as Mark's Mark's Gospel goes, the first ten chapters cover about a thousand days of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. And the last six chapters cover a week. The first... Ten chapters of Mark's Gospel cover a, roughly, round numbers, 150 m- uh, weeks of life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And Mark 11 through 16 covers one week. And what's that mean? That means what happened in the events of that last week of Jesus' earthly life and ministry really is the main focus of the preaching and teaching of the Apostles. Now, I doubt that many of us think about that kind of a a focus or that kind of an emphasis because we generally, when we read the Gospels, we spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, the Sermon on the Mount and all the different miracles that he did and all the accounts of interactions with religious leaders and, and et cetera, et cetera. But the fact of the matter is, when you look at the four Gospels, there is a tremendous focus on this last week of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. What happened from the what is typically referred to as the triumphal entry to the death, burial, and ultimately the resurrection of Jesus Christ really is the heart of the gospel. It really is the primary focus in the context of the preaching of the apostles and the content of the gospels that are written for us. That shows you how much emphasis Mark and the other Gospels put on the events of this last week of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. And to set it into historical context, which is really what helps you to understand how this is all playing out, I want you to take your Bibles, keep your finger in Mark 11 here for a moment, I want you to look at John chapter 2. In John chapter 2, you know John was the last Gospel written And he spent a lot of time writing about things the other Gospels didn't write about. And if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, although the material is arranged a little bit differently, and the accounts are not word-for-word identical, which actually goes to the credibility of eyewitness accounts, if you've ever interviewed witnesses... Uh, even if you're not a lawyer, even if you're not in the police, uh, in in a uh, police uh, law enforcement context, if you've ever come home to a plurality of children and found something that was amiss and started to interview the witnesses of your children, you can tell usually when they're telling the truth, when the details are different, right? But they all kind of add up to one common thing, which is Steve did it, right? Right? Okay, so as you as you go through the, the gospel accounts, the fact that they're not all verbatim word for word, they do have different details that they remember, etc, shows you the honesty and the integrity of the accounts. Well, we're in Mark chapter, excuse me, in John chapter 2. It's the third day after Jesus picks up the first of his disciples here. There was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And Jesus, you'll recall, does what John calls his first sign. The first miracle Jesus does is changing water into wine at this wedding in Cana. And then you skip down to verse 13. uh, Well, actually, in verse 12, it says, After this event, he went down to Capernaum. He and his mother and his brothers, his disciples, they stayed there a few days. And then the Passover of the Jews was near. So Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And in verse fourteen, he found in the temple those who were selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. So he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep, the oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers, uh, 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 poured out the coins of the money changers, overturned their tables, and to those who were selling doves, he said, "Take these things away! Stop making my father's house a, a basically a house of markets, a place of business." His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And then the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Notice, the Jews here refers to the religious leaders, specifically the high priest and, his, uh, and his, uh, the other priests there in the temple. And you'll notice they can't find fault with him for what he's doing. Because everybody knows that what he is doing is biblical, it's righteous. They really have corrupted the worship there in the temple. What they're asking is, where do you get off uh, taking matters into your own hands and driving uh, and, and, and cleansing the temple yourself? Now he answers them destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. The Jews said it took 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? John goes on to say he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Even the disciples don't connect the dots. Okay? It's not until after the resurrection they think back on this event and go, "Oh, that's right, even at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. When we first started following him, he went into the temple, cleansed the temple, and the, the priests asked him, on what basis do you do these things? And he pointed to his resurrection as the sign that demonstrates he has this authority. When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his uh, his name, observing the signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them because he knew all men. Uh, He didn't need anyone to testify concerning men because he himself knew what was in a man. From the very beginning, a lot of people there in Jerusalem seeing these miracles, they wanted to start following him. They were really impressed with the signs, but he didn't entrust himself to any of them because he knows what's in a person. He wasn't looking to win over people to make him king. He wasn't looking to do things to try to accumulate a following. You know, we got a presidential election coming up. You notice how much effort is going into finances and and uh, speeches and all kinds of stuff uh, at this point in uh, in our history. There's more mudslinging than than. Uh, uh, administrative plans articulated, but, but at the end of the day, there's a lot of effort. There's a lot of money and energy going into accumulating a following and support to elevate whoever's going to be our next president, right? That's pretty common. Well, Jesus wasn't doing anything to try to accumulate a following. He wasn't trying to cater to anybody. When he walks into the temple And he cleanses the temple at the beginning of his ministry here in John chapter 2. He does it to demonstrate uh, that he has come on God's behalf to do God's work God's way. And he is not entrusting himself to anybody. Notice immediately on the heels of this is when John 3 kicks in. There was a man of the Pharisees. Now that's different than the priests. You have the priests or the Sadducees, and you have the Pharisees, or the Scribes, okay? Two different political and religious-based organizations. It's not exact, but it's similar to Republicans and Democrats. You know the only thing that Republicans and Democrats can agree on? Giving themselves raises. Unless there is a major threat from the outside, like September 11th, and then all of a sudden, bipartisan stuff, uh, we're, we're, not, we're, not, we're Americans now, right? Okay, scribes and Pharisees versus priests and Sadducees, they're absolutely diametrically opposed to each other. But when Jesus goes into the temple and cleanses the temple at the beginning of His ministry... What has he just done? Thrown the gauntlet down in the high priest's own backyard. Well, there was a man, John 3 verse 1, of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He's a ruler of the Jews, meaning he's a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, the 70 elders, like part of the Senate. This man came to Jesus by night. A lot of people say that was because he was embarrassed to come to Jesus. It's that night after he's cleansed the temple. At night, during the night, he comes to Jesus and says, Rabbi, not I know you, are, uh, you have come from God. He says, we know that you have come from God as a teacher because no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. What sign has Jesus just done? He cleansed the temple. You know, if you're a Pharisee or a scribe, if you're if you're a part of that conservative religious group in Israel in that day, what Jesus just did in cleansing the temple has proven that, yeah, that's our guy. You are our guy. We are ready to get behind you and support you. If Jesus was trying to win over people and accumulate a following, He has just secured it by going and cleansing the temple. By the way, keep in mind, there are armed guards in the temple. These are the temple guards on the payroll of the temple and the priest. And when Jesus is flipping over these tables and you can almost hear the change bouncing on the floor and the animals being driven out and all of this money and nobody lifts a finger. The only way you do that is if God is with you. And everybody's afraid to act. And the rest of the people are going, wow, I can't believe he's doing that. Nobody's doing anything. But it's about time somebody did something. Well, this is the Pharisees. This is the scribes. It's about time somebody did something. So that night, Nicodemus says that the preeminent teacher of Israel goes to Jesus and he says, we, he's speaking for himself and all the scribes, all of his party. We know that you're a man sent from God because nobody could do the things you do unless God is with him. All Jesus has to do is say, well, Okay, well then let's get together and let's bring about a, re- a revolution. Instead, what does Jesus do? He does with Nicodemus and the Pharisees from that point on, the same as he did with the, uh, with the priests. He calls them to repentance. Jesus answers and says to him, verse 3, truly, I say, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus goes, how can this be? You're the teacher of Israel and you can't figure this out? This is at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. He spends most of the rest of his ministry outside of Jerusalem. Why? Why? Because he already made it clear that there's nothing but corruption in the temple and the priesthood. From that point on, he leaves Jerusalem primarily and does ministry up north in Galilee. He's going to all the synagogues where the Pharisees and the scribes are. He's spending all of his time in the backyard of the scribes and Pharisees. He is preaching the truth and calling them to repentance. And now, uh, every Pharisee who thinks that he is the most righteous and already naturally, of course, a member of the, the kingdom of heaven and calling them to repentance, he is offending them constantly for three years, just like he did the priests from the very beginning. You remember it got to the point as we were going through Mark's gospel, you can turn back to Mark 11 now, remember as we've gone through Mark's gospel, especially over the last six months of Jesus' uh, uh, earthly ministry up to now, remember how Jesus has been doing, moving away from Galilee and out into a little bit more of the Gentile territories? He's been doing miracles and telling people to be quiet about it, etc., Why? Because he is seeking to prevent everything from coming to a head until he gets to Jerusalem. What has he been telling his disciples? Three times, Mark tells us, he point blank tells his disciples, we're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be handed over to the religious leaders and then ultimately executed by the Gentiles. But on the third day, I will rise again. This is the way it's all going to play out. Jesus is in control and on the Father's plan throughout this whole earthly ministry. Jesus does not get caught up in events and and politicking or any of that kind of stuff, and He comes into Jerusalem presenting Himself as a king, and then it just doesn't go well, and He winds up executed. Oops. Okay? This has all been the divine plan from the very beginning. The details that are recorded in the Gospels, and as we'll look especially in Mark 11 verses 1 to 25 this morning, the details recorded in the Gospels for us demonstrate that Jesus was in control and orchestrating events very deliberately and purposefully to present himself to Israel as their king and pronounce judgment on them because of their unrighteousness, call them to repentance and give them the opportunity then to either accept or reject, knowing full well they were going to reject Him. What you see starting in Mark chapter 11 here is the unfolding of the divine plan that Peter himself is going to preach on the day of Pentecost when he says, He was revealed to you as you know well as from God because of all of His miracles, but you rejected Him and crucified Him by the hands of godless men. And God has raised him from the dead. This is all the divine plan from the very, very beginning. These last six months, Jesus has been working diligently to lay low, but now he is going public. He's been announcing to his disciples the way it's going to play out when he gets there. And as he is headed to Jerusalem for this Passover, he has accumulated more and more people, more and more of the pilgrims, more and more of the Israelites from all over the world that are traveling to Jerusalem for this festival. And he has been teaching along the way. He has been doing miracles along the way, accumulating more and more followers, and there's more and more anticipation and excitement and genuine anxiety and fear the closer they get to Jerusalem. If you were here last week, you remember we were in Jericho. It's about a day's journey now. It's about a day's journey from Jerusalem. He would have probably gotten there on Friday. They would have stayed in Jericho on the Sabbath because they wouldn't have traveled on a Sabbath. And that brings us to what is typically referred to as Palm Sunday, which is the narrative that we're looking at this morning. As we've been coming along the road, I just want to point out one thing. Mark, excuse me. Mark ten, verse thirty-two. Even before they got to Jericho, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them. This is like what Luke says that Jesus fixed his face toward Jerusalem. He said, "I'm going to go, and I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again on the third day." Well, notice the reaction of the disciples and all the people that are following him. They were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. And he again takes the twelve aside and says what's going to happen when he gets there. He's going to be executed and rise again the third day. They don't connect the dots. But the anxiety of the crowd and the people. Everybody's amazed that Jesus is so purposeful out in front heading to Jerusalem. And everybody's afraid. Well, I don't know how it's going to go when it gets there. They all view Him as the Messiah. They're all excited. And in fact, the account we looked at last week, Mark 11 verse, or Mark 10, verses 46 to 52. You remember blind Bartimaeus says, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Calling Jesus out publicly as Son of David means I recognize you as the Messiah. The one with the rightful claim to David's throne. Well, we're going to look at Mark chapter 11 this morning, verses 1 to 25. And I want to share with you two key details that Mark records for us that will help you to see that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, and He presented Himself as the Messiah. And He made pronouncements as Messiah, condemning and calling to repentance the nation of Israel. Giving them an opportunity from the beginning to either receive him or reject him for who he is if you've ever been reading your bible and just wondered is there is there one place that i can go to and say and see that the text says jesus claimed to be equal with god claimed to be the messiah something this is one of many He doesn't just come out and say, listen, everybody, yes, I'm the Messiah. Yes, I'm the Messiah. Yes, I'm the Messiah. In fact, he's purposeful about not saying it that way so as to not create hype and people support him as their view of a Messiah. That's why he used the term son of man so many times. Now, you can see from the text here two key details. One is the presentation of the king. And in order to make Chuck happy, I've called the second one the pronouncements of the king. Notice there are two P's the presentation of the king, verses 1 to 11, and the pronouncements of the king, verses 12 to 25. The presentation of the king, verses 1 to 11, and the pronouncements of the king, verses 12 to 25. That's the outline we're going to follow this morning. We'll start with the presentation of the king in verses 1 to 11. And you'll notice that it begins with some preparations that Jesus goes to to make sure that as he makes his way into Jerusalem, he does it in a very purposeful and a deliberate way in presenting himself to the nation. Verse 1, as they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. He said to them, go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has yet ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You are to say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it back here. You notice that they get to Bethphage. Matthew makes it clear that they they arrive at Bethphage. There's a little bit of a debate historically about where exactly that's located in relationship to Bethany, etc. Both of those little villages are on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives. And you know about the Mount of Olives, right? So you've got Jerusalem, uh, and then you've got the temple on the east side of Jerusalem up on the Mount, right? And then if you, if you go east, you've got the little Kidron Valley, the brook there. And then there's the Mount of Olives. You can literally stand on the Mount of Olives and you can look across the top of the Temple Mount. We've been there and done that. It's pretty awesome. And you, you just look down the valley and back up and then you can see right across the top of the, the temple grounds. And the temple grounds are huge. We'll talk about that in a minute. But on the back side of the Mount of Olives about two miles outside of town. So it's about, round numbers, it's about uh, three quarters of a mile or so uh, from the gate there in Jerusalem up to the Mount of Olives. If you go over the Mount of Olives down the backside about another mile, there's a couple of little villages there. One is Bethphage and the other one, (coughs) excuse me, and the other one is Bethany. Okay, now, According to Matthew's gospel, they arrive in Bethphage, and Jesus says here, uh, go into the village opposite you, which would imply it's Bethany. So head over into Bethany. Footnote here, that's the place where Lazarus lived. Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And so he takes two disciples. Now, we're not told who these are. I suspect they're not Peter, since Mark is written on the basis of Peter's preaching. And if Peter was the one that went, Peter would have identified himself. And so two of the 12 are assigned personally by Jesus to head over into the opposite village, which is almost certainly Bethany. Head over there. When you get there, okay, immediately as you enter in, you should find a colt tied there which no one has ever sat on. Untie it and bring it here. Now, why would Jesus do this? You know, as you go through the gospel accounts, do you ever read an account of Jesus riding anywhere? I mean, obviously, even well, frankly, even across the water he walked, okay. But usually he took a boat. But uh, you don't read about him riding a camel or a horse or a donkey or a colt or any, you read about him walking everywhere, right? This is a deliberate act by Jesus. He stops on the backside of the Mount of Olives, uh, a mile and a half or so out of town, about two miles out of town maybe, and he says, all right, go get a colt and bring it over here. And he gives the specific details as to how this colt will be found. It'll be tied up. It'll be a young colt on which no one has ever sat. I want you to untie it and bring it here. This will be the very first time somebody's ever written it. This will be uh, its its First time it's ever been made use of. And if anybody asks you why you're doing this, you are to say the Lord has need of it. And immediately he'll give you permission. He'll send it back here. So sure enough, verse four, they went away and they found a colt tied at the door outside in the street. And they went and they untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them. Some of the people just out and about doing their, their normal daily business. And by the way, this would have been somewhere in the afternoon, three or so, uh, three or four o'clock, because Jesus has traveled from Jericho to here. So uh, that's still about a twenty mile hike. By the time they get here, it's later in the afternoon. You're going to see that Jesus makes his way into the temple, and because it's late, he turns right or w- back around and leaves. So this is the middle of the afternoon. And they find this colt tied at the door. Matthew tells us that the mother was also tied there together with it, and they brought both of them. Mark's only pointing out the colt because that's the one that Jesus rode on. So these two disciples, they go and they find this colt tied at the door, outside in the street. And so they went up and started to untie it. Some of the bystanders, people going about their daily business, say to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They're just looking out for their neighbor's property. And they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them. And what, what had Jesus told them? The Lord has need of it. That's what you were to say. The Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it back here. The Lord needs it, and as soon as we're done, we'll bring it right back. And so they gave him permission. Oh, okay, go ahead. Now, commentators have a field day with this whole discussion and the way things played out was this Jesus miraculously knowing this and when they say the Lord has need of it God worked in their hearts to grant permission was this something that Jesus set up in advance and that was kind of a password the Lord has need of it you know the text doesn't tell us So I think even entering into that discussion is so subjective, I I don't think that we should even be trying to figure that kind of stuff out. I think when you notice that he says the Lord has need of it, what is Jesus doing? He's exercising sovereign uh, priority. You go in, I think there is either a prearrangement, maybe even with Lazarus, or with somebody else in town, or just knowing divinely from from the Father that this will be there. In any case, when He tells two disciples to go get that colt, this is Jesus purposefully staging the event for Him to ride into Jerusalem on this colt. This is not happenstance. This is not an, oh, by the way, well, let's go ahead and leverage this. This wasn't somebody else's idea. This is Jesus that set this up and orchestrated the events accordingly. And when the instruction is, tell them the Lord has need of it, this is a divine uh, um, uh, act of commandeering this young colt by the Lord for the event that is at hand. This is like when a police officer says, "Uh, I'm commandeering your vehicle, give me your keys. Except in this case, it's the Lord. Is this a divine exercise or a simple sovereign exercise as Messiah? Yes. Yes, it is. Jesus is not liberating because He's going to give it back, but He is is exercising the divine prerogative to make use of this animal for this event. In verse 7, they bring the colt to Jesus. And they put their coats on it, or their cloaks on it. So those, those two disciples take their outer garment, they put it over the back of this young colt to use as a makeshift saddle. And then Jesus sits on it. Why would He do this? Why would He, why would he stop on His way to Jerusalem to make sure that He's entering into Jerusalem this time on a colt, the foal of a donkey? Why do all of this? Mark doesn't make a big deal of it, but if you keep your finger here in Mark 11 and jump again over to the Gospel of John, look at John, verse, or John chapter 12, I think it's verses 14, well we'll just pick up on uh, uh, in verse 12, it's the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast when they heard Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took branches of palm trees they went out to meet Him, began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding or having found a young donkey, sat on it. Notice what John points out. As it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your King is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Some of your Bibles even have verse 15 in all capital letters. Why is that? Because that's a citation from Zechariah nine. That's a prophetic promise that your king is going to come to you seated on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Verse 16, John tells us these things his disciples did not understand at first, but when he was glorified, that is after the resurrection, uh, they remembered that these things were written of him and that he had done these things to him. Okay? But listen. It's after the fact, John says, we connected those dots and saw why Jesus did what He did the way He did it. This was, Jesus purposefully did things to fulfill Scripture. Jesus perfect, purposely did things in perfect accordance with the Father's plan. All of this to demonstrate that what happened and the way it played out was no accident. It was no happenstance. It didn't just play out that way. It wasn't the the weird toss of a coin or the weird bounce of the ball. This is literally orchestrated by Christ perfectly in accordance with the Father's plan. You go back to Mark 11. You see, they brought the colt to Jesus. They put their coats on it. He sits on it. And likewise, in verse 8, we're told many spread their coats on the road. Others spread leafy branches, which they had cut from the fields. So it's not just palm branches. It's leafy. the People ran to both sides of the road, ran out in the field, broke off the limbs that were leafy, brought them in, and laid them across the road. And keep in mind, this is tens of thousands of people marching in at the start of the festival week together with Jesus. This is Palm Sunday. This is the Sunday of Passion Week. Passover is going to be celebrated on Thursday by those who are from out of town and on Friday by those who live in town, and this is the Passover week. Sabbath was yesterday, Sabbath, uh, Saturday. <laughs> Sabbath was Sabbath, yes, Sabbath, Saturday, okay? And then on Sunday is the first day you're allowed to travel, so they make their last, way, uh, last leg of the journey from Jericho into Jerusalem, and they get here in the middle of the afternoon. And as they're coming in, Thousands of people making their way into Jerusalem for the festival. And it was common for lots of people to show up at the, t- at the same time. It was common to meet up with people on the road because you just join in when the crowd starts going by. Okay, Martha, it's time to get your stuff together. There are people going through. Oh, it's just the first of the crowd. Or more likely, Martha going, come on, dear, it's time for us to... Oh, it's just the first of the crowd. I've got a couple more things I'll take care of. Right? because uh, I know some of you are the early birds, like my wife, and some of you are they are not going to start without me, like me, okay? Uh, and some of you are in between depending on the event. In any case, it was normal for lots of people to wind up coming in crowds, and as they typically as they approach Jerusalem, as you get closer and closer to Jerusalem, there's more and more since you're coming for a religious festival. More and more of that sense of celebration, that sense of singing and songs and etc. And what were the songs that people sung in an Old Testament context? The Psalms. And most particularly, there was a common practice, a traditional practice of starting to sing through the Hallels, particularly as you get to, down the last slope before you make your way, that last leg of the journey up the road to Jerusalem and into the city. And it was normal for people to be singing the hallels, singing those songs, singing them and chanting them and celebrating, just like carolers for Christmas, kind of a thing. And this is for the Passover in this case. Lots of people coming along, but this time's different. This time's special, it's unique. This time they're all coming together with Jesus and Jesus isn't slipping in on his own without a crowd following him. Jesus is coming together with the crowd and Jesus this whole time. He hasn't been hiding his miracles. He hasn't been separating himself from the multitudes. He's been in their midst. He's been doing miracles purposefully and publicly. He's even not rebuked people that have said son of David to him. He's not told anybody to be silent at this point. And when they get just two miles outside of town, he sends two disciples to go and get a young colt to fulfill scripture and present himself as their king. This is your king. And if that triggers in your memory the time that David had Solomon paraded around in Jerusalem on a colt, the foal of a donkey, indicating that he was to be king. that's, That's good. That should pop in your memory. This is a king who comes not on a war horse, not on a charger, not on a great stallion. He's not coming as a conqueror to conquer. You want to see that version of Jesus, read Revelation 19. It's going to happen. But this time, he comes meek and lowly. He comes as Prince of Peace. He comes in humility. The Son of David. The Messiah presenting himself to Israel as king on a colt, the foal of a donkey, in perfect fulfillment of Zechariah 9. He has been deliberate about this. And all the people that have been traveling with him, all the people from outside of Jerusalem and Judea that have been coming along, they've seen all these miracles and they're in agreement with it. They're anxious about what Rome is going to do. They're anxious about how J- Jerusalem is going to respond, and especially the religious leaders, because they know of the tension between Jesus and the Pharisees and the, and the scribes. They know of the tension between Jesus and the priests, and, and they know of how it all went the first time He came for a Passover. And the disciples keep Arguing amongst themselves and competing with each other to see who's going to get the best seats in the kingdom because they fully expected to play out here. This is the hype. This is what's going on. And you can see the way the people are so in favor of this. They are so exalting in Christ. All those who have traveled along with him, it says many spread their coats in the road. This is the red carpet treatment. Tell me something. When was the last time you took off your coat and laid it on the road for somebody to walk over? (laughs) Why would anyone ever do that? You do it as a show of respect. You do it as an expression of worship. As a demonstration of acknowledgement of superiority and sovereignty. They're treating him as king. This is the royal red carpet treatment. Lots of people are laying their garments across the dirt road. Others are running out into the fields and cutting off branches, etc., and laying all the leaves. Can you imagine being in Jerusalem and looking out the gate and seeing as the road that comes up all these people? And instead of singing halals, notice in verse 9, those who went in front and those who followed In other words, Jesus isn't at the head of the pack here. He's in the middle of the pack. And those who are out in front, as well as those who are following behind, were all shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. You know what they're doing? They're identifying Him as their Messiah, as their King publicly, directly. This is a citation straight from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. I wish I could walk through that whole psalm with you. There's a ton of stuff there. Uh, Let's go ahead and look at a a little bit of it, though. Look at Psalm 118 with me for just a minute. You're going to see how much messianic uh, material sits in this psalm, but look at verse 22. We'll just pick up there because I know you'll recognize this one. Psalm 118, verse 22. This is the heart of the gospel that the apostles preach after the resurrection. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. You ever heard that before? Yeah. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, meaning when the religious leaders rejected their Messiah, He winds up proving in the end to actually be Him. Verse 23, this is the Lord's doing. Notice, Lord is in all capital letters, so it's a direct reference to the covenant name of God. This is Yahweh's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save, we beseech You. O Lord, we beseech You, do send prosperity. Blessed is the One who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed You from the house of the Lord. What's the house of the Lord? The temple. Notice the focus. The Lord is God and He has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I give thanks to you. You are my God. I extol you. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Now there's a ton here, but did you, do you hear the expression? This is what they're quoting from. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Right, If you look at verse 25, this is where the Hosanna comes from. And I'll show you this from the Hebrew in just a second. In verse 25, O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Okay, that O Lord is, again, the covenant name for God. That's Yahweh. O Yahweh, do save or please save. We beseech you, save. Okay, now go back to Mark 11. Notice how it's recorded here in Mark 11. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. The Hebrew of Psalm 118 verse 25 reads this way. Ana Yahweh. Please, O Yahweh, Hosanna! Please save, Hosanna! You hear it, Hosanna! That's literally what they're telling you. They were literally citing, quoting straight from Psalm one eighteen. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our Father. Hosanna in the highest. All these people that are coming with, along with Jesus, this great multitude of thousands of people are coming in together with Him. And they're acknowledging Him as Messiah. And He has purposefully come in on a colt the foal of a donkey, riding meek and lowly, presenting himself just like a Zechariah 9 promised. He is presenting himself deliberately as the king of Israel, offering himself to Israel as their king in a formal capacity. And you can tell that uh, the Pharisees that were part of the group that were traveling along with the multitudes. Now, I want you to take, keep your finger here. Look at Luke 19 for just a minute. Luke 19, Mark doesn't, doesn't point this out, but in Luke 19, verse 39, we're told in this same context, notice verse 38, all the people are shouting, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest, etc. So they're, they're shouting the hosannas, save us, O Lord, and they're recognizing this as the coming of the Messiah. But, verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd were saying to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them not to do this. In other words, they're recognizing you as king. You need to to rebuke them and tell them to stop this. Notice Jesus' response. I tell you, if these became silent, the stones themselves would cry out. Oh, Jesus knew what he was doing. This literally is a formal presentation by Jesus of himself, Uh, to Israel as king. If you were to look at Matthew 21, I'm going to read it, but if you want to turn there with me, Matthew 21, verses 10 and 11. In this same context, I want you to notice the contrast between the crowd that is coming with Jesus and the people who are residents living there in the city of Jerusalem. You know, we live... Uh, we live over by in and out which is not far from the fairgrounds now. Uh, we can always tell when the fair is going on because the traffic outside uh, down the street is just all backed up. And the fireworks means that, oh, my goodness, just don't even go outside, etc. Well, can you imagine if you're living in Jerusalem and a few hundred thousand people came to town two or three times a year? Can you imagine how much congestion there would suddenly be in those times? You know, I don't go to the mall unless my wife makes me. But going during Christmas time, yeah, that's, you might as well take me to Walmart. Okay? It's, that, is, that is torture. There's so many people there and, and so much. You, know, you, you understand what I'm talking about? Okay, in Matthew 21, Look at verses 10 and 11. So verse 9 says, The crowd's going ahead of Him, and those who were following were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. They were literally saying to Jesus, Hosanna. Recognizing Him as Lord. Recognizing Him as Messiah. Calling on Him to save them as the Lord's anointed. Verse 10 when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth and Galilee. All the people there in the city are like, you know what? This is not normal. Well, what's going on? Who is this guy? Oh, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth. This is the Messiah. You want to know how things can turn from. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord on Sunday into uh, we want Barabbas on Friday, because it's two different groups of people. The group of people that are saying Hosanna are all those people that live out in the Gentile areas that live outside of town. You want to know when Jesus's trial happened? When they put him, take him straight to Pilate and put him on trial and then gather together a crowd, who did the religious leaders gather together as a crowd? Residents in Jerusalem. And the people they had in their pocket. That's why you can even read the people coming into town to worship uh, on uh, Friday when he is sacrificed. They look and they see him from the road. They can't believe the way that everything has turned around. Well, you go back to Mark 11 and you take a look at verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem, He came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, so where's the first place he goes? The temple. What's he do? Nothing. He just looks around and sees what else going on at the temple. And then he left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. So it's already the end of the day. The only thing that happens, really, on that Sunday, that first day of the week of Passion Week, is he comes in and presents himself formally to Israel as the king. And he goes straight to the temple and looks around and takes note of what's going on. And then he heads back out of town. He goes back up over the Mount of Olives and he heads to Bethany, probably to stay with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. That's the presentation of the king. You can see that he deliberately presented himself to Israel as their king and he didn't in such a way as to fulfill prophecy. Now in verses 12 to 25, I want you to notice the pronouncements of the king. And these are pretty interesting, so, so stay with me. Verse 12, notice the first pronouncement that Jesus makes is the condemnation of a fig tree. Say, wow, that's his first royal act, is to condemn a fig tree. Well, just watch. Verse 12, on the next day, so it's Monday of Passion Week, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. A lot of people have gotten into an argument here about, well, this means they didn't stay with Lazarus or Mary or Martha because surely they would have fed him. Uh I don't know if, uh, if you've ever been on a business trip or whatever, but I get, once in a while, I get called to, to go preach somewhere or something. And uh, uh, there's almost always uh, a, some kind of a provision of breakfast downstairs. And normally what I make sure is to get a cup of coffee uh when i'm at home i have a i'll have a protein bar just a regular routine but when i'm not at home you know i just don't want to have something sugar maybe i will have part of a muffin or something but that's it but i get picked up at the front door of the hotel and driven to the church and by the time i'm getting there i'm wondering whether they have donuts because all of a sudden now i am hungry right i don't think that him becoming hungry when he's uh left Bethany and was on his way into Jerusalem a couple of mile walk. I don't think it's any surprise that somebody just gets hungry. And seeing at a distance, verse 13, a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. And so he says to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples were listening. This is a This is a statement by Jesus that gives a lot of people a lot of problems. That's a very mean thing to say. Why would you condemn a tree? That poor tree is just sitting there doing nothing. It's even got green leaves. Why would you condemn a tree? And then then commentators even have a field day getting into this whole debate. Well, it's not the season for figs, so it doesn't even seem reasonable that Jesus would find fault with it. Now, that's kind of like uh, like out there to, can I say that and be one of the cool kids? That's out there? Or is, am I, I'm not a cool kid saying that. Well, I'm saying it anyways, All right? So that's kind of, that's kind of far out, dude. That's kind of way out there uh, as far as rational thinking to see a fig tree in leaf, know it's not the season for figs, and then be so disappointed that you're hungry that it doesn't have anything to eat, you just kill the tree. Wow, that just doesn't fit right. Okay, until you step back and realize the whole context here and exactly what's going on and why Jesus does what he does. You are used to seeing Jesus heal the sick. You are used to seeing Jesus cast out demons, cleansing lepers. You are used to seeing Jesus raise the dead, calm the storm, feed the multitudes, right? You know what you are not used to seeing Jesus do? And many liberal theologians have even argued that the Jesus is a different God than the God of the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath. The God of the New Testament is a God of love and mercy and kindness. Can I just point out to you a couple of quick things? The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. And with regard to Jesus being just a lovey-dovey guy meek, mild pacifist who would never raise his hand against anybody. I'm not even going to go to Revelation 19. We're, we're instead, we're going to look at, of all of the people, of all the prophets, of all the spokesmen for God there have ever been in the whole Bible, do you know who talks about hell more than anybody else? It's Jesus, by far. And you want to know who it is that's going to be seated on the great white throne in Revelation 20, judging the living and the dead and casting all those who did not repent and come to Him in repentance and faith, casting them into the lake of fire together with the devil and his angels? It's Jesus. He says this in John 5 to the religious leaders. Not even the Father judges. He has given to the Son to judge and to give life. What you see here before Jesus goes into Jerusalem on Monday of Passion Week Is an act of divine judgment. And if you look at verse 13, you can see it seeing at a distance. So as he leaves Bethany, he becomes hungry. And from a distance along the road, he sees a fig tree. Now that's not out of the ordinary and there's nothing special about it. But this is a fig tree in leaf. And notice at the end of the verse, it's not the season for figs, which means it is way too early for this tree to be in leaf. This tree should not be looking this alive and vibrant like it's got fruit on it. In fact, if you know anything about the seasons, we're a couple of months out from it becoming really blooming and and being at all ready to have fruit. But he sees at a distance this fig tree that looks healthy and vibrant and alive and like it should have fruit. And he goes to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he gets to it, he finds nothing but leaves because it wasn't the season for figs. And so he says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Why? Because that tree looked like it had fruit. Put on a show like it had fruit. Now I know that it's not an animate living creature, okay? And so did Jesus. But you'll notice the end of verse 14 says his disciples were listening. What's that mean? This is Jesus and his disciples. There's not a crowd here. This is not something that Jesus does for the crowd. This is not something that Jesus does willy-nilly or just because he had a little spat with a tree or is in a bad mood because he's getting ready to go get crucified. Okay, this is this is Jesus seeing this tree and making an object lesson out of that tree and its great greenness and leafiness looking like it's so productive when nobody else nothing else is. And it's just putting on a show. So he condemns it and says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And he does it in such a way, condemning this tree for pretending to be fruitful when fruit is both absent and out of season and he condemns it in the hearing of his disciples so that when they come back he can teach them a lesson second pronouncement is against the temple look at verse 15 then they came to jerusalem so they come into the city now He entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and overturned the seats of those who were selling doves. He would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. What is he doing? Very similar to what he did at the beginning of his ministry, cleansing the temple. They had gone right back to selling animals exchanging currency. They had gone right back to turning the Father's house into a house of markets. And when Jesus comes as a public demonstration of His authority now, having presented Himself as Messiah, the first thing He does is go into the Father's house and cleanse it again. Some people say this is the same cleansing and John just has it out of order or whatever else. I think it's obvious there are too many distinctions between the two. Uh, this really is the second time that Jesus does it, and he does it very deliberately. There's no reference to the putting together cords and that kind of stuff here. He's, he's, but he is going in and very much doing the same kinds of things. He is driving out those who are buying and selling in the temple. He's overturning the table of the money changers. Uh, Those buying and selling has to do with people uh, selling pre-certified animals for the sacrifices. I think we've talked about this many times in the past, so I won't belabor the point. But just to point this out, when you brought your offering to God in the temple and offered it up as a sacrifice, it had to be a spotless uh, sacrifice, right? An offering without spot or blemish. How many animals do you know of that are truly without spot or blemish? Right? Right? so you bring your animal in the priest looks at it all he has to do is find one thing wrong and says i can't accept that one however we do have pre-certified animals out in the court of the gentiles now there is a little bit of a markup because obviously these are all spotless and then you can by the way let me give you a card hakim outside He'll actually buy your animal. It's obviously you're selling it because it's, it's not flawless, but he can give you a little bit of a price so you don't have to take it all the way back home to Galilee with you. And then if you come into the temple the next day, that animal is now pre-certified and being sold 10 times what they just, anyways. You say, you're just making that up. No, there's a lot of evidence for this kind of stuff. The seats of those selling doves. Doves or pigeons are what a poor person had to sacrifice. Let me give you just a a little bit of an illustration here. The the tables of the money changers are because if you're going to offer any kind of a tithe, pay your tithe, make an offering to God, you can't offer it in Gentile currency. And for a mere 25% commission, and some, now now granted, Steve, don't don't get it because, Sometimes where there might be a surcharge as well, but I can make you such a twenty five percent exchange rate, and you can you'll be able to here's the temple coins uh, that's literally yes a twenty five percent commission twenty five percent so you bring a dollar, you get seventy five cents worth of temple currency um, when when you um, when you look at uh, some of the exchange rates and money never transitions well when you're trying to relate money in ancient context to today, especially in an American economy. But two pigeons is what, if you're poor, two pigeons is what you could substitute for an animal. If you can't afford an animal, then you get two pigeons because they're really cheap birds and etc. except they too have to be acceptable. So if you bring your own, you know, I can't guarantee you the priest will accept it. But we will sell you again pre-certified. Now, the, the price, relatively speaking, of two pigeons outside of the temple context was a nickel. Round numbers, today's currency, a nickel for two pigeons. Do you know what it cost for two pigeons that you could actually take to the altar and sacrifice? Four dollars. Now, it wasn't dollars and a nickel, but that's basically what you're talking about with the corruption in the temple. That's the high priest's pocketbook. He has taken the worship of God and turned it into a magnificent money-making scheme for himself. That's why when Jesus, in the beginning of his ministry, goes in and flips over those tables and cleanses the temple, the Sadducees and the scribes are so ready to, have, to, to, to jump on the Jesus bandwagon because they see the corruption. And from an external perspective, at least, they want to live lives of integrity, lives that are obeying the law of God. And they see all this corruption and it bothers them. Are you bothered by the corruption in our government? Are you bothered by the corruption in your office? Are you bothered by corruption? Is there ever a time when you want to borrow Gina's Batman cape and set things straight? Okay, listen, that's the situation he comes into. Some people have said in verse 16, when he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple, uh, they've suggested that this was people had even decided I can take the shortcut through the temple and just uh, instead of making my way through town. Now, that's possible, but I really believe this is just he wouldn't let anybody do any business. Because I've been to Jerusalem and I've been on the Temple Mount. I'm here to tell you it's 300 yards From the ground up the stairs to get to the Temple Mount. I can't imagine anybody wants to carry a load of merchandise up there unless you're planning to sell it up there. And then, just so we're, just so we got a basic handle on this, you're gonna be watching the Super Bowl, some of you this afternoon. You're gonna see the field and how big it is, right? Well, the Temple Mount area, you come up the stairs and go across it, it is 500 yards from this and the south end of the temple all the way to the north end of the temple. Five football fields long. And that's north to south. From east to west, it's three football fields. Or if you want to line them up and kind of get a mental picture, it's five football fields long, and you run them six rows because a football field is 100 by 50. So five football fields, six rows of five football fields, that's north to south, 1,500 feet, uh, east to west, uh, 750 feet. No, 600 600 yards, 900 feet. Now I lost my train of thought. Anyways, (laughs) I guess today I don't math. It's big, okay? It's big and everybody's up there because you're there for the worship. You're there for prayer. You're there for sacrifices. You're there for instruction, the whole bit. I don't think anybody goes up into that madhouse unless they're planning to to worship. What Jesus did was shut down everything that the high priest was doing. In verse 17, he began to teach them and to say, is it not written? Notice the quote from Scripture. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Notice, it isn't even just for Israel. This goes all the way back to the prayer of Solomon. This goes back to Isaiah 56. The, house, the temple was constructed, and the house of God was constructed, and the, even, uh, even the area of the temple mount was laid out to facilitate not just Israel, but all the nations to be able to come up there and worship God. And they took the court of the Gentiles and turned it into their money marking, uh, uh, t- basically to their mall. Their money exchange place. You want to know what the first thing that Jesus does as Messiah when He gets into the city is He goes to the temple and cleanses it. That's the first thing the Messiah came to do. Cleanse the worship of God. Cleanse the temple and banish corruption from it. The temple is supposed to be a place where everyone, even, even Gentiles, could come in and pray to God, recognize the one true God of Israel as the one true God of creation. But they turned it not just into a money-making scheme. They turned it into, notice he says, but you have made it a robber's den. Literally a, 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 a cave of robbers. You know, you know what bandits do? They go out and they steal from people and then they run back to their hideout. You've turned the temple which is supposed to be a place where God is worshipped by all the nations, into your hideout, where you take advantage of people. Now notice in verse 18, the chief priests and scribes heard this. And notice, chief priests and scribes now. This is not just the priests. The priests and Sadducees and the high priest are the priests. The scribes are the scribes and Pharisees. When he cleanses the temple in John 2 at the beginning of his ministry, the, Sadducee, excuse me, the priests are offended. The Pharisees are ready to follow him. Now when he comes in and the first thing he's going to do is clean up corruption, well, what would happen if we had a politician that genuinely was committed to cleaning up corruption in the United States? Yeah, you better get some extra uh, secret service guys for him, right? Because when you get into organized religion, when you get into organized politics, it is hard to find places where there aren't corruption. He goes in as a first act as one having been recognized by the multitudes as Messiah. He walks up to the temple grounds and he cleanses the temple. And he says, you have turked, is it not written, my house, referring to God's house, the temple shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've turned it into a robber's den. Well, now the chief priests and the scribes, Republicans and Democrats, when they hear this, from that point on, they're seeking to destroy him. All their differences are set aside. The one thing they're united in is getting rid of Jesus. Why? Why? Because they didn't agree with him? Because they thought he was wrong? No, what's it say in the middle of verse 18? Because they were afraid of him. They were terrified. Well, what made him so afraid? Because the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. The whole crowd hears what he's saying and agrees with what he's doing. In Matthew 21, we won't take the time to turn there, but in Matthew 21, and verse 14, we're also told in the same, on the same occasion, the blind and the lame were coming to him in the temple and he was healing them. Here he is doing miracles. Here he is turning over the money changers' tables again. It's almost like you can hear the coins clinking on the floor. You can see all of the animals driven out. And this, can you imagine what they're trying to set up down below now because Jesus has driven all of this out? Can you imagine the carnage, the chaos? And everybody's in agreement. Why? Because almost everybody is from out of town. And they came in with him. And the religious leaders are now afraid. By the way, this is going to set the tone for for understanding why when Jesus was arrested. Remember the night in which Jesus was betrayed? He gets arrested. Why do they send 600 armed soldiers to arrest Jesus? Because they're afraid of the crowd. Why do they come in the middle of the night? Because they're afraid of the multitudes. Verse 19, when evening came, they would go out of the city. This is why they needed Judas to betray him, to say, where is he at night? So that we can arrest him, because we certainly can't arrest him on the temple grounds when everybody's there and they're all in favor of him. Oh, but they're looking for an opportunity from this point on. Now they're really going to kill him. All they need is, is that opportunity. And they made their regular practice. When evening came, they would go out of the city, which means this is their practice the rest of the week. Verse 20. They were passing by in the morning and they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. And being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. Say, well, well, why didn't they notice it uh, the day before? Answer. What did what did you just hear? what did we just read in verse 19? When evening comes, they leave the city. So when they walked by it from Jerusalem back to uh, most <coughs> excuse me uh, most likely to Bethany, it was dark, so they didn't notice it. But the next morning, Tuesday morning of Passion Week, as they're passing by in the morning back on their way into the temple, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. You ever spray weed killer on a weed? What happens? Does it die just like that? The next day, you just see the the little bit of the edges curled and brown, and the next day, like even a little bit more of it, and by the third day, it's totally recovered and healed and <laughs> taking over the yard again, right? But that one good plant that you had in the neighborhood that you accidentally sprayed. It just keeps getting worse and worse and worse and then dies and you got to replace it. But does it do any of the plants just wither and die instantly? No, but when Jesus cursed this fig tree, it withered and died. And the next day, it's it's a dry, dead tree, even to the roots. Notice the astonishment in Peter. He says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted to him. Therefore, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they will be granted to you. You think, you know, all they've seen Jesus do is miracles of healing and calming the sea. Now they've seen him do an act of judgment. Well, they've, they've heard him pronounce woes upon people. Woe to you, Chorazin and Bethsaida, because if the miracles had been done in you were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they'd still be around. He's heard them pronounce judgments against people, but they've never seen it come to pass. They're going to hear him pronounce judgments against the scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, hypocrites all. You're like whitewashed tombs, right? They're going to hear that, but they've never seen him with a word. Condemn something and it just be dead. What's Jesus Jesus saying? He is preparing them because a week from now, they're going to be his spokesman. Forty days from Passover, they're going to be on those temple steps proclaiming his gospel. You need to recognize, truly I say to you, amen, I say to you. Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea and doesn't doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it'll be granted to him. Now, I'm going to come back and and review this next week, this section on prayer. But for right now, I want you to notice the big point. Therefore, I say to you, all the things for which you pray and ask, believe you have received them and they'll be granted to you. Stop thinking small and recognize that as my ambassadors, as my apostles, apostles. You need to recognize you have authority to take actions on my behalf and, and there is nothing, there is nothing God cannot do. But notice in verse 25, and here's where we'll leave it, where, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, you need to forgive. Why? So that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. See, this is the difference between, Peter, or between Jesus and his disciples. This is the difference between Jesus and us. When Jesus, Jesus has the absolute right to expect, uh, fully expect from us and from his creation, what he has created us to do. We're not perfect. We're sinners. So even when you're acting on God's behalf, Even when you're exercising authority on his behalf, you need to never lose sight of the fact that you're a sinner in need of a Savior as well. What have we seen today most clearly? That Jesus purposefully presented himself as the King who comes to his people. And he demonstrated it in the way he presented himself in fulfillment of Scripture. And he demonstrated in the pronouncements that he made, including initially cleansing the temple. Jesus is our great Savior. He is our God, but he is also our Lord. He gives life and he condemns eternally. Even when you're struggling with sin, it's good to run to Jesus and ask him to forgive you and save you and be merciful and kind to you. But you you must never lose sight. We must never lose sight of the fact that He is also holy God and has every right to expect us to walk in accordance with His commands. Father, thank You so much for this day, for Your Word, for Your authority, for Your power, for Your forgiveness, and for Your love. And also thank You for Your righteousness, Your wrath, and Your justice. May we be those who love you for the fullness of who you are and who live for you out of not only love and appreciation, but also respect and worship. In Jesus' name, amen.